Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Acting Director Sarah Larson of the Food Finance Institute, and I have the pleasure of welcoming Chris, International Trade Consultant from the Wisconsin Small Business Development Center. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd love if you would just introduce yourself a bit to our listeners, talk a little bit about your role, um, and then we'll dig into to more of the details. Awesome. Okay. Well, you know, again, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Um, well, Chris Watowitz, I'm the International Trade Consultant for the Small Business Development Center and their Go Global initiative. A little bit about me. I started uh, I started with the SBDC last year in September. I've been going gangbusters since then. <laughs> um, prior to that, I have about 30-ish, a little more than 30 years experience in trade development, uh, trade compliance. That means our laws and their laws when it comes to importing and exporting. Um yeah, you know, and, and that, you know, just, just a real general overall uh, education in uh, in all things trade, including logistics, uh, you know, how to get the stuff to that foreign country or how to import it. Um, you know, both sides of the fence, I guess. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I always think it's, a, it's great to note that, um, Chris, you know, you're here as representing our really valuable Wisconsin Small Business Development Center office and every state has a similar version of this and more than likely has a Chris or a version of a Chris that can really help support um, a business's needs around this whole topic of how do I think about going international or going global as your program's called. Right. Yep. There's a Chris near you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um well, that's fantastic. Yeah. So we talk a lot with our clients and our consultants about creating that go-to-market strategy or that plan for expansion. And often we're spending a lot of time about talking about regional growth or local growth or national growth. And so I'm really excited to, to dig in about kind of this international growth opportunity. What do you see as um, some strategies for expansion for a food business abroad or how do you really incorporate an international market into your growth or channel strategy as a food brand or farm business you know it, it, those are wonderful questions because a lot of people think gosh you know international i just i just don't want to do it it's too complicated i'm afraid of it um you know it really isn't that that daunting that that overpowering if you have capacity so, you know, you, you take a look at what your harvest is, what your production is, um, mm -hmm. and you have excess capacity. Well, you, you want to sell it. And, you know, for me, of course, I'm a little biased, but thinking of an international export market is, is certainly comes to mind. Um, I'll just throw out a really quick statistic. I think less than 1% of all U.S. companies export. Oh. But 95% or maybe even 99% of the world's market is outside of the U.S. So it kind of makes sense to explore markets. Um, what I tell people is, first off, look at your product. 
-hmm. look at its benefits. It's what it does. It's why somebody would want to buy this. I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's good stuff, right? Uh, And then take a look at, you know, markets as to where uh, this product or a similar product is going to now, I mean, are these foreign countries importing your product or something similar to that? And then, where do you tell people to get that information, Chris? Do you, is there a good place that you can find that, or that you direct clients to if they really want to understand that potential or that competitive set or white space or opportunity? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a couple of really cool uh, resources that are out there. Uh, you know, the International Trade uh, Administration has uh, export.gov. Um, you can, uh, they have this market uh, database thing, so you can type in what your product is, um, and then they'll tell you, uh, the, you know, your top five, top 25, or top 10 countries, whatever you select mm-hmm. on the drop-down mm-hmm. box, and says, you know, these are the countries we think are ripe. Oh, and by the way, uh, they're importing this from the United States, and this is the overall market share in, from the United States. So you know if it's a really strong market for mm-hmm. your goods. Well, that's some valuable data. I think so. Um, I really do, especially for for uh, for you know food and agricultural commodities. The other thing too, uh, and this is relatively new, but um, you know we're all on the, we're all on the internet, <laughs> and we've. Google things uh, a million times. I mean, Google's like a household word. It's like Kleenex, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what we uh, what they have is this thing called a keyword search. Well, you can go into a couple of different sites that are out there and perform a keyword search, and it'll tell you who's looking for your product. So, I mean, let's say you've got like uh, what, what's a really cool Wisconsin product? Cranberries, right? Well, who's got cranberries or who's searching the internet for cranberries? Well, then it'll pop up the top five countries and away you go, right? You add that mm-hmm. to your research. Those are some great tips. And I know we've seen um, ginseng have a lot of success right? with online selling and using some of those strategies you have. And so those are some great resources to note. Mm-hmm. From there, we tell people, let's, uh, you know, let's take a hard look at these markets that uh, are, are, are pinging back to you and saying, hey, this is a good place to sell your stuff. And we develop what's called a strategic market entry. So that's how do I want to sell it? Do I want to sell it direct to an end user, like in the product? You know, so if I have some really cool uh, packaged good, you know, whether it's uh, peanut butter or, you know. We had like a pouched adventure maple syrup that I always thought was a really interesting uh-huh. product. Yeah, who doesn't like maple syrup? Yeah. So you know, you, you know, you 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 have that, and do you sell that to the end user uh, on your own website, or you know, how about a distributor? Maybe you need a distributor, and you're thinking you want to go into all the grocery stores in Germany, right? Um, or you know, how does that look look like? Or maybe there's a similar product out there. Um, Honey, okay, so you got a honey honey uh, seller, uh, and it's a similar product to maple syrup. Eh, people like putting honey on their pancakes, right? So it might just be one of those things where you you piggyback your marketing along with that company, and in in a way you go. I mean, so you've got you know you've you've got some different market strategies there. And I know you had kind of. We're hinting at that the distribution channel process is going to be kind of similar to when you're making your go-to-market plan in for your regional or national launch or expansion. You're going to be looking at distributors or retailers or online, all those different 
potential outlets or ways to move your product. But now we're thinking about that international application of it where that allied company can help. Um, are there other things to really think about that can impact how that channel will work with you um, when you're talking about an international market? Like, are the costs of distribution more besides the obvious of, you know, shipping or whatnot? Um, there's like, I know you'll probably get into packaging or food safety stuff from this, but like, what else should we be thinking about when we're thinking about those channels? Sure. Well, let me address the last part. I mean, I, maybe it's obvious and, and it might not be, but if you're in the mm -hmm. food business, you obviously have a lot of regulation. You know, if it touches your body or enters your body, you know, the USDA has got something to say about it. The FDA, Consumer Product Safety Commission. I mean, in Wisconsin, we have DATCAP, right? So everybody is, everybody's concerned about, you know, the safety of food and things that uh, then enter your body. Well, just assume and, and, and it's a safe assumption that the foreign country that you're looking at uh, will also have similar regulations. You know, think of Canada. There are neighbors to the north. Uh, that's why you find a lot of stuff, not just in English, but it's also in French. Okay. So those little nuances, you know, that, that you have to look at, that's the compliance side of, of, of international business. Certainly something that we can help out with. We've got a lot of resources and databases for that kind of stuff. The other part is, is just settling on your distribution model. So after you've done the compliance, if you've decided you're going to go and, and sell this online, you know, uh, what type of uh, registrations uh, do you need for, you know, taxes and things like that? Or if you're going to sell this through a distributor, a lot of people want to know how they're going to get paid, right? So, you know, should I offer terms? Should I get cash up front? Am I selling in U.S. dollars or am I willing to take mm -hmm. foreign currency? Um, there's a lot of these questions that, that need to be answered. And it really boils down, I think, to uh, your risk level, what, what your risk appetite is. What is, could you talk a little bit more about that? Like what would, um, how would I manage my, my risk as I'm thinking about this international channel, because obviously if I'm getting a big account abroad and I do come into a quality or a food safety issue, is it, can you, what would help me th make my, make me think about lowering my risk versus being and remove anxiety about maybe selling international? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, you know, risk comes in all shapes and sizes, right? So the relationship that you develop with your distributor, uh, in those foreign markets is really going to be key. So, you know, from, from the, from the basic, how do I get my stuff there? Okay. So I'm going to work with my freight forwarder to get my product to, you know, Germany, let's just say. Um, but before then we need to work with our distributor and in, in our contract to saying, <clears throat> you know, what, what, uh, what term, what term of sale? There's these things out there called INCO terms, and we could talk about that for another hour. <laughs> but um, with, with INCO terms, it tells you who's responsible for paying the freight and arranging the freight, who's responsible for maybe buying insurance, and uh, who's going to be responsible for the risk of loss, and where, at, at what point does, you know, does that loss transfer? Um <clears throat> That will alleviate a lot of your worries and issues. 
right right off the bat. It's like clear documentation on all of those points. So then you know going into the relationship oh, where absolutely. you stand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Documentation is key about everything. No matter if it's a food product or you know some sort of manufactured good. Um, you're, you need to, your documents need to tell a story and that, t- that story is to, uh, a customs official in that foreign country. Now, these aren't some big, bad, scary people, you know, but they're generalists. They haven't a clue what a russet potato is, uh, or, you know, how honey is grated or, you know, uh, maple syrup is grated, right? Or any of that kind of stuff. All they know is that it's there and they buy it at the local grocery store. But what they do have a concern with is, you know, is it valued properly? Uh, was the right uh, words and, and numbers and codes were they used? Uh, were there any licenses that were needed to have for import and all that kind of stuff? Now, a lot of that's typically the responsibility of the importer of your distributor, but that's where having that good working relationship is going to come in. Because the guy overseas is the one that's going to tell you what your product needs in order to sell in the foreign market. Sure. Do you see um, an international launch taking much longer than a national launch? So um, we might say that to launch a new product could be six to nine months, right? Process from conceptualization to to finish and getting it really out into the market. If I were to include an international channel component in that, um, I imagine that will add a couple more months because now I have to go through that uh, nutritional label translation or whatever other translation services. I might have to go through another food safety layer of analysis, um, all of that sort of stuff. Um, Do you see that adding about two months or does it vary across or anything you've seen as far as um, what that, how long that process does take? I like to tell people that I'm a little bit more conservative. So I like to tell people to plan six months to a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and the reason being is some governments just don't work that fast. Mm-hmm. So if you've got to apply for some sort of approval from somewhere, then just know that it's going to take a while for that approval, you know, potentially take a while for that approval to come back. I mean, you know, look at what's going on in our own country. It, if you want something, it, it takes a little extra time because, you know, we don't have a lot of employees right now that are there to do the work. Uh, other countries are having that same problem. So be patient uh, and just work through the process. Um, but don't, you know, I, I tell people, please don't expect to do this overnight. Yeah, I think I had to do manage a translation for going into Canada. And I think just the label part took three weeks of getting our current English labels all translated into French, which caused you had to relay out all the labels because there's a different amount of copy now and change the nutritionals to match standards. And so just that part I know was was three months or three weeks of the process. So, right. um, yeah, that's that's a helpful touch point. Yeah, that can that can definitely cause some issues. So, uh, and I think the the thing is just just be aware of that, and then you'll be uh, you'll be much happier. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe unpack like some of this process for a little a little bit for 
maybe there's a, a company you've worked with who has gone through this export process of Food One and what that what that looked like from making the decision to export to if they did decide to do e-commerce or work with a distributor and what were some of those decision points and kind of costs even associated with it? Because I know that's a big factor in some of these is what what will it actually cost to include um, include this as a as an option in our strategy? Sure, absolutely. So uh, you know, I, I, I've got a couple of uh, really cool examples, uh, and I'll I'll start off. I'll give one, uh, and this is a packaged good. So, uh, a particular client makes uh, Asian condiments. Okay, so mm-hmm. things that uh, you would just put on your uh, dishes or noodles or whatnot. And um, she was a gal that came uh, came from the uh, from an Asian country, emigrated uh, uh, into the uh, into Wisconsin, and it was like wow, I can make all this stuff here because all these ingredients are a lot cheaper here and I can export them back home and people will buy them up. And I said, well, remember when I was telling you what what makes your product so different, right? I I said, well, why would they buy your product versus something closer to home? She says, because all the stuff at home is made uh, in a larger, uh, 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 I shouldn't say China, should I? (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to pick on the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. In a- but, you know, but she had said, you know, the, uh, the, the people's view of the products made there uh, aren't as favorable as they are for products coming from the United States. I'm like, oh, great. So you can parlay that advantage into your market entry and your product. So now what we did, again, remember I told you when you're entering different countries, you have to have a strategic plan. So Mm -hmm. we took a look at the three different countries that she wanted to go into and we determined what were the requirements for the product, you know, uh, did, uh, was there a, uh, a religious factor, um, you know, certain certain religions like uh, uh, is, is Islamic religion and uh, Jewish religion have uh, have some restrictions to their diets. So we had to make sure that if if there were any of those products in your uh, condiment that they were they, they met those regulations. And then, of course, any of the labeling stuff like that. And, uh, you know, she opted to go with uh, a, a label in English and then kind of like smaller subtitled, if you will, in the local language. Okay. Thought, okay. That was really cool. And what, you know, she ends up selling to a distributor. So she has, uh, she's, she's currently selling uh, pallet quantities. Uh, boy, I wish I could tell you how many of her p- packages are on a pallet, but you know, she sends a pallet over to the foreign country, and it's distributed in in three or four different uh, chain uh, markets over there, and it's really cool. Now she's looking at expansion, but of course, now we got to more expansion means we got to make more of the stuff, right? <laughs> right, right. It's really turning. About is it about how much um, did she have in sales when she? made the decision to go abroad? Oh, you know, I think she was probably hovering around maybe 25,000, 50,000 in sales. Pretty small. So this was a significant expansion strategy for her. Right. Well, what her her deal was is she wanted to try this out in a local market. And Uh if you you think about the diaspora of different, uh, different cultures, I mean, in the United States is one big, 
uh, melt, well, we've been called the melting pot, right? Mm-hmm. So you can look around your, your town and you can find pockets of Polish people or, um, uh, Asian people or Indian people. And, and, you know, so what she decided to do was to make this product and then try it out in these pockets of, of people uh, of, of Asian descent and do her marketing that way. So it was getting it into their hands. Did they like it? What would they change about it? You know, things of that nature. And then once she built her confidence, then it was, I'm going gangbusters. <laughs> And that's where she decided, you know, to make her her mark. Now you can buy the stuff locally in Wisconsin. You probably won't find it in Illinois or Nebraska, but that's because she focused on the export market versus mm-hmm. the domestic market. Will she go domestic? I hope she does because it's really good. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. And so she's doing about a pallet. Uh, how frequently right now to those um, to those countries? She's doing it monthly. Okay. Uh, but now, you know, of course, what her expansion is now is to expand her facility so it's a little bit more automated and then she can send container loads worth of stuff there. And her market's responding very well to this. Um, her her success really is, be, is because the product was uh, uh, produced in the United States. Uh, and the again, the, the presumption in the foreign market was that the alternative product – uh, wasn't as uh, high a quality or good, um, which is just worked out to her advantage all around. It was a win-win. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, and I think you also hit on another point when you were touching about the the scaling, right? When she was at 25,000, was she producing in a commercial kitchen? And then was part of her strategy of this investment in going abroad to get her own facility? Or is she... Using a, was she ever considering a co-packer or can you talk well, a little bit about that aspect right. of the scaling decision? So she started out in the commercial kitchen because okay. you know, that's, that's just economically that, that mm-hmm. worked perfect. You have a shared facility. Um, then the next phase, of course, when you're going to sell international, you're selling capacity, right? Your, your excess typically uh, for her, it wasn't selling excess capacity. It was, it was always the goal, but understanding she'd have to meet demand mm-hmm. so that went to the co-packer and now she's looking at that next step which is probably a year or two down the line so that she can really ramp up production and you know away she goes off to the bank right um but that's that was all part of her strategy uh, i would recommend that to anybody again before you even start your international uh, uh research is to say, where are we at now? Mm -hmm. And how can we scale up? Because the last thing you want to do is find a customer overseas and then not be able to deliver them any product. Mm -hmm. That would be bad. (laughs) But did, I know sometimes we spend a lot of, when we're doing our forecasting work with businesses, right? That sales forecast and that production planning can really be one of those points of like, I don't know what assumptions to make, particularly if they're an early stage company or entering a new market, right? Where it's like, well, I don't know what expectations are going to happen and kind of navigating through that. Like, let's make this ex- assumption. Let's talk to the right people. Let's let's get something on paper that shows the possibility for this market. Um, how How does that conversation work when you're going from that 
I'm a small local brand here and now I'm trying to get to pallets in India. Is it is a distributor really helpful with sharing movements they can expect and lists of retailers and, you know, those sort of things and helping them build out that forecast? Is that it, you kind of doing outreach or how does that sort of um, building that projection and the possibility sure. you find working sure. the best? That, that, that conversation, of course, happens long before the distributor is even identified. Um, what I tell people to do or to consider is, uh, again, look at what made them successful in the domestic market. Okay. That doesn't mean it's going to automatically translate. That mm-hmm. success is automatically going to translate into the foreign market, but it might. So take a look at those factors. And then you can you can research those consumer uh, attitudes in that foreign market that you're considering, where that you know the statistics say we're ripe for you to sell your product. Okay, so again, um, we, we take a look at you know India. Uh, are, the, are the Indian people going to be able to buy my product, uh, or are we going to go to a country that's a little bit more? Um, affluent with with disposable income, say, you know, somewhere in Europe, right? Um, Is somebody in Spain going to be able to buy my product? Are are they going to want my product? You know, do they, do they have a, do they have a taste for cranberries, maple syrup, honey, ginseng, um, whatever our product might be? I'm just throwing out some famous um, Wisconsin. My fancy kombucha, my wonderful pot pie. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. My wonderful pot pie, my kombucha, my whatever it is, my waffles, right? Yep. So, you know, we we, we can, that consumer attitude uh, is readily available out there, or you can do a market study. That's when maybe somebody, um, not so much your distributor, but there's going to be a food um trade group, if you will. I mean, there's food trade groups here in the United States. They got them over there too. So in that foreign country, you can solicit that trade group. Uh, Might be a pay-to-play type of thing, or they might just have it on their website saying, yeah, we love strawberries. (laughs) So, all right, then I know I need to have strawberry flavored something uh, to go into that market that's going to appeal to the people in that market. You've talked a little bit about some strategies for expansion abroad and kind of talked through how this woman with the 25,000 just decided she was going to go gangbusters. Her strategy was like, was um, exporting product, right? Right. And then if we think about the, the path that is, I want export or import to complement my existing products. What are some ways you see that strategy being applied? I imagine sometimes you can find and I know some of this goes back to a lot of the conversation we're having about, is your product unique enough? Um, Will it fit this market? But if we're kind of talking about ways we've seen this execute itself, I'm guessing that sometimes, yes, you know, your existing product will fit a market and you find that market and go there. Um, You find a flavor that is prevalent in an international market and create a version of that of an existing product with that flavor, um, kind of what other strategies do you see show up in this well, space? I, a lot of it boils down to, to researching and understanding the market. You know, what are they, what are they looking for? Um, and if you, if, if you don't want to go into the, what are they looking for? Your product is so new that this, this market's never seen it before. Then what about this product 
um, is, is, do you think is really appealing? You know, um, there's, there's a lot of different things you can do, uh, talking about different flavors and whatnot. A lot of these are, are just hypotheticals, but of course it really does boil down to the results of the research that you did. Uh, and, and again, a lot of this is available online and for free. Um, when you're when you're creating your market strategy, and those key places are those trade organizations, probably right. your business library if you have one near you to help you get some of that free data. Right. I mean, there's again, you you've got your business libraries. You have groups like the SBDC, uh, the U.S. Commercial Service. They have a phenomenal com- uh, suite of of uh, products and people that, to help you out. If you're in a rural area, uh, they've got the they've got a, a wonderful market research program for folks in rural areas. Um, I think of uh, sister organizations like WEDC. You know, they'll have uh, a market. And that's a Wisconsin. Economic Development Corporation. Yes, um, right. I'm sorry. I'm full of acronyms. <laughs> yeah, I know. We always have to unpack the alphabet soup, but that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> but yeah, those EDOs, another yeah. one, Economic <laughs> Development Organizations, yeah. often yeah. can be a big help, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they'll have trade <laughs> ventures and trade fairs that they go on, uh, you know, all of that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things that are out there. Some of them are pay to play. Uh, but when you look at the overall price, it's a heck of a lot cheaper you could do for yourself. But then what we do uh, at the SBDC is we come around the backside of it and say, okay, great. So you paid $100 and $200 for all this data. Let's help you understand it and create that market strategy for you. So there's a lot of that export.gov. I can't emphasize that one enough. There's a lot of information there. You can even find regulations on export.gov for your product in Brazil or Argentina. <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll get you started. Yeah. Well, I can't highlight the point Chris made enough about like these, there's these small business development center consultants like a Chris that can, are there to help you navigate this and remove that anxiety and that, that might come with considering this or managing the fact that there's so many different countries. Um, the regulations are probably different among most of them. And so really having somebody to help you think through this and, and create that plan is so valuable. And so I know we're always grateful to be able to work with Chris to support um, food clients we work with. Well, I really appreciate that. I, I absolutely love what I do. And I've, uh, you know, like I said, I've, I've been doing this for about 30 years. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful job. It's fun. I love to, I love to work on, on projects and with people uh, who are new. They're, you know, you've got some of these folks that are just really wide eyed and gosh, I know I can make this happen. So uh, we meet people where they're at, you know, what do you want to do and how can we make this happen? I love that. Yes, that's what we need. Um, Not going to let you get away yet, though. What are some of the biggest misconceptions you see folks have about this international market opportunity? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that it's it's difficult. It's Mm -hmm. mysterious or the government is going to know everything about me uh, or it's expensive. Um, You know, I, I, I tell people that the, the, the reverse is true. 
Although, if you do it wrong, if you just go headstrong into a market without doing your diligence, without doing your homework, it can be costly. You know, mistakes cost money. So, um, you know, that's that's probably the number one big uh, misconception is that it's, you know, it's scary. Well, it mm-hmm. might be. You know, change always uh, change always accompanies reward. That's something that I've that's been my mantra for life. So, you know, it's the biggest thing I can tell people: Um, don't be afraid of it, Um, embrace it. Uh, Once you get over that initial hurdle, man, it's all downhill. Well, I do think there is a perception about the expense side of it that you mentioned. And can you speak a little bit more than that? Because we, we're often, we're focused a lot on the projections and the planning for the businesses we work with. And so if I were budgeting for an international launch, is it really any different than budgeting for any other launch I might budget or some anything I would have to consider differently? Again, there's some uh, extra things uh, that are going to come up uh, internationally versus domestically. Uh, so, you know, you might have to budget extra for things like marketing, uh, packaging, of course. Um, you might have to uh, budget for transportation. Again, shipping a, a, a load of something from here to Chicago might be, you know, 500 bucks. Uh, but something going overseas is now going to be five thousand bucks. Um, I'm just throwing some numbers out, but just know right. that it's going to be a lot more, right? Um, and you know, the question then just arises: How can we recover uh, those extra costs? You know, will the market bear that? So, if I have to add a dollar to the cost of my product to sell in that foreign country, will people still buy it? Well. Mm-hmm. That's answered, again, through your research. What's a similar product going for over there? Mm-hmm. Um, other things you might want to consider in your budget would be a visit to the market. People still appreciate when you take time to visit them in their home market, create that relationship. Um, that's that's really huge if you can do that. So, you know, consider a a you know a, a visit to the market in a in a couple of years or like I had said if there's a trade venture that's going that you can participate in mm-hmm. great opportunity but again cost money you know it's not like going to, to Iowa still costs a little bit more <laughs> mm-hmm. we touched a bit on the quality and food safety side and how that's probably one of those areas of anxiety do you, you have can you talk a little bit more about that does does my food role re- food recall policy I have, my HACCP plans, do they do they translate um, or do they go through that same process of I just make sure they meet the standards of the country I'm going to? Is it, have you worked with a company through a recall in an international company and, you know, hopefully they never happen, but, you know, it's really, I'm just trying to think of ways to normalize some of these things that might cause anxiety to your point sure. before, Chris. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of, like I said, if, 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 if you have a product that touches your body or your is ingested, you can bet that a foreign country is going to have the equivalent of a USDA or an FDA. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I know that there are countries out there that uh, really model their programs after the U S 
which is, you know, that's cool. I like that compliment. Um, but it doesn't mean you're right. It doesn't mean that your plans necessarily going to translate into that foreign country. Um, if you've already gone through the pain of making that plan here domestically, elements of that plan, uh, will likely translate uh elements of that plan are already there so it may require it just may be that you've got to tweak it a little bit um and that that works out um but again it's that research it's it's connecting with the agency in that foreign country to um, understand what is required of your product Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps working with that trade association or that distributor that you're striking up a relationship with um, in, in all of those different little elements. So that's that's the part of international trade that just takes a little extra time than domestic is there's just a little bit more that you have to do. But it's yeah. not scary. It's not, it's not a hardship. It's not going to cost you money. It will if you get it wrong, but it on, on the upfront – it's not going to cost you money to do this research. Mm-hmm. And get those approvals and those checks and all of that on that front end yep. moving into the into the transition. Absolutely. Um, what about, and again, th- this may just be, if we're talking, we used an example of a shelf-stable condiment, Chris, before for a company you had worked with. How much more complicated does it get when we start talking about a frozen or refrigerated item? Or are there certain classes of food that are going to be a little bit more difficult just to have in mind, whether it's, you know, when you start to get to peanuts, that's going to be an issue because of the allergen factor. Or when you get to um, a raw commodity like A, B, C, or D, you might see a few extra steps. Is there is there anything like that um, that comes to mind when we talk about this food and agriculture space that might be worthwhile to mention? Certainly. Um, certainly there is. And, and we might want to, I, I, I guess I caution, I don't want to use the word, there should be some obvious ones out there. Because <laughs> what's obvious to somebody isn't somebody else, right? But when you start getting into things like alcohol, I mean, oh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of wine producers in Wisconsin. Uh, but you can be sure that a foreign country is going to have uh have issues with alcohol. Um, when you talk about your frozen uh, frozen foods or temperature controlled foods, uh, your temperature controlled foods, of course, you have to make sure that they stay within that particular temperature when they're shipping overseas. Um, there's costs involved to that. Uh, shipping temperature controlled is uh, a lot more costly than shipping something that might be like a bag of potato chips. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the fact that you're, you're, <clears throat> you're spending extra resources for, uh, for the safe care and travel of that product. Um, we take a look at uh, agricultural commodities. Uh, I'm working with a client now. Uh, wow, this guy's got a really brilliant, uh, brilliant product going on. You know, they ship beans and grains. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this, but every time that you transfer beans and grains from, let's say, like the field to the elevator or the elevator to the truck, you lose like 7%. And it's mm-hmm. like, wow. You know, I didn't even think about that. But I suppose when you're looking at a grain elevator, it's pretty dusty, right? Right. So what they did is they created a product. Uh, it's like a big, um, it's like a big 
bag. It's called a super sack. And it's about 2,000 pound bag, right? Ooh. Well, they put that into a regular ocean container, you know, those 40 foot containers you see on the, on the street or on the trains. And there's some sort of humidity control or environmental control in that. So basically it goes from the field to the sack right into the container. You don't have any extra handling. It's reducing the the need, or even eliminating the need to have this big grain bin, right? And they go right overseas with it. I'm like, oh, that's cool. But what, again, so when you take a look at what are the needs of that product, well, obviously you can't just blow corn into the back of a, of a trailer and expect it to be good because you got to get it out. Um, so that that big super sack and then... Uh, having the ability on the other side uh, overseas then to unload that, that truck. And pack um, it then too? So they must have some additional infrastructure over there? Overseas, yeah. They'll, overseas, they'll have yeah. that, yeah, they'll mm-hmm. have that, uh, that packaging or whatever they mm-hmm. use the product for if they're making a box of cereal out of it or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of different, uh, different things that are, are – eliminated in that mode but for for everybody else that might not be considering that you know shipping in bulk or shipping in super sacks there's 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 things to consider there as well is there any tax effect to international shipping and this i just really don't know that like should be considered or folks should be aware of or tax consideration that's that's a that's that's a great question, and it's one that pops on uh, a lot of people's minds. Um, we had this little party in Boston a number of years ago where they took a bunch of tea and threw it overboard. Uh-huh. Um, that, that that basically, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was sarcasm. You can yeah, just like, just like that thing that we all forgot from two years ago. Nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. well, the last time I heard about it was like third grade. So. <laughs> no, so in the United States, uh, there are no export taxes. Okay. That's not true of all countries. So what we're going to be concerned about, again, depending upon the deal you made with your client overseas, are the import duties or taxes that may or may not exist on your product. So uh, that's always a really good thing to research up front. And then when you are striking your deal with your customer uh, or your uh, distributor that that's addressed. Okay, who's going to pay for those? Um, I'll, I can guarantee you right now. Well, I shouldn't guarantee anything, but I will, I'll, I'll take the bet that if you're shipping a packaged product, say remember our, our condiment, our Asian condiment. Mm-hmm. Let's say I went online, uh, Amazon or whatever, went online and I bought three jars of this stuff. But when it shows up to my home here in Great Britain or France or wherever I live, the last thing I want to do is hand the UPS guy money for duties and taxes because I just paid a lot of money for this product to get it over here. So you're going to want to consider in your e-commerce strategy how you might be able to get that product in the person's hands duty-free. I mean, they paid for it. You collected the money up front. Everything, everybody is happy. On the distribution side, when you're going like the big, big grocery chains and, and whatnot, you know that's that duty and tax is handled differently. Uh, it might be something customarily the importer is just going to assume anyway, but it may show up. So it's definitely worth understanding what it is, and then of course uh, determining who's going to pay for it if, in fact, there's a charge. 
Yeah, that's a good point. So that you're matching that customer expectation so that you're doing all this work, but still creating that good customer experience. That's across, what it's all Across seas, whichever seas they are. Yep. That's what it's all about is that customer experience. You know, we always, um, we like to think that we're worried about getting that first sale. Nah, you're going to get the first sale. The second one is the hard one. So you want to make sure that you've uh, you've met that expectation and everything went just perfectly. And you said the word import, and I didn't want to lose that for a bit because I know you've talked about, we've spent a lot of time talking about, let's get products from Wisconsin or the U.S. to other countries. But there's also a strategy where it could be that there's a complementary product or a specialized product that could round out your business's offering um, or an ingredient, right? Or something like that, that it might make sense to import to help expand your business in the States. Um, can you speak a little bit to to that and how you've seen that strategy um, sure. work for a business? Uh, that's, yeah, perfect. Um, and, and I've got a couple of great examples and clients I'm working with right now. So, you know, again, uh, the United States is this big melting pot, right? So I've got some clients of mine, um, from a foreign country they immigrated here to Wisconsin and they said, wow, you know, we got this really cool snack food that we make uh, over there. And, you know, I'd love to import that here into the United States and sell it to all my friends that, you know, uh, immigrated with me because there's communities of us all over. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. So, you know, again, uh, now we're working on the import side with the same uh, federal government agencies like uh, the Food and Drug Administration and, and USDA uh, about uh, how to make sure that this product is packaged, the things that, it, you know, the ingredients are, uh, are safe for uh, consumption for, you know, Americans, um, labels and all the rest of that stuff. You know, we have a nutrition label guideline, a foreign food facility registration, all of that, things that we work through and with. And then on the other side of that import is we, we I've told my, uh, I told my clients, think about where uh, other people like you live. Where's your dyspora? You know, oh, well, there happens to be a big community of our people in Montreal. Well, that happens to be Canada. So now we can export that product. So uh, to kind of just to wrap that whole up is that, you know, we have a lot of, of folks that will import either a finished product and distribute that in the United States or re-export it somewhere else. And it doesn't have to be re-exported to their own people. I mean, I, I love food from everywhere, right? So I, I would definitely give this a try if it's some weird type of, uh, you know, whatever from mm-hmm. a foreign country. But in any event, <clears throat> we, um, we, uh, we tell them, you know, people either bringing in uh, packaged goods or they're bringing in ingredients, okay? So, right. um, you know, you, you think of some of the things that you just, we don't make in the United States. Saffron's a beautiful example. Saffron's also horribly expensive. But it you, is. you can get that in other countries a lot cheaper. You can import that in the United States and now you can either distribute it or you can make something out of it or put it into your product because maybe that was an ingredient. And then that's for the domestic market. Or again, if you re-export that. 
Um, one of the cool things about re-exporting products that are imported that we haven't really covered, but there's a concept called duty drawback from U.S. Customs, and they'll refund, uh, I believe it's 90 or 90, I think it's 95, over 90% anyway, of the duties and taxes that you paid on oh. the import. So it's like, well, that's cool. So if I imported it, paid duties and taxes and then exported it out again, I can get a refund. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Great concept. Great program. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned, I think, a, a little bit in a few spaces, but would there be anything worthwhile to touch on on selling? Like, can you sell on Amazon to other countries? Or if you make that consideration to sell online on your site beyond the U.S., or is there more in there to talk about or that we should touch on? Well, yeah, perhaps, because uh, you're right. You'll have a lot of people, uh, let's say you'll have a, a local uh, producer. You got some guy that made 60 gallons of, uh, of um, maple syrup this year because he got a lot of out of his trees, and he's just a, a local guy, and he sells it to his local community and, and doesn't really, you know, he fall, falls under those, under the radar of, of a lot of regulations locally, right? Um, what happens a lot of times is that if he has a website and he's, he's put that on there, somebody in, in Canada or another country has said, oh, hey, can you, you know, send this here? Man, yeah, not a problem. And he is obviously not aware of any of the foreign countries' requirements. Uh, that is until the foreign country stops his product. And then I'll you know, then he's got a bunch of problems. Um, you know, when you're, when you're looking at e-commerce um, as, as, as a distribution model, it's, it's very incumbent upon you to make sure that you go through all the steps that you would for your product to enter into that country legally, as you would any other method of distribution, whether it be uh, um, using a, a, a warehousing type of distribution model to, you know, grocery stores to, you know, putting it in your suitcase and bringing it over yourself. Um, it'll, it behooves you just to make sure that you uh, don't run afoul of that foreign country's customs or regulations because it could come back to bite you. And so the place you start with that would be with the customs department or like the Department of Agriculture, some comparable organization like that. Well, start out here first. Again, we, we talked about export.gov. I know oh, sure. the, the uh, USDA has uh, um, resources for foreign countries. Uh, even the trade associations have resources for foreign countries. Uh, and then, of course, the foreign country uh, equivalent of the USDA and whatnot, they'll have some resources for you as well. Um and some of them are high level. Uh, some of them get right into the weeds with you. So uh, it, it, again, it just behooves you to do your research first. So there's definitely a lot of opportunity here, it sounds like. And it's really, I think, important to hit home the point of um, this, this doesn't have to be an anxious, anxiety-provoking consideration. It's really a similar process that a business is going through when they're considering any other channel. And it's just that extra, you know, little bit of time because you're going through some other administrative steps, right? Because you now have another country, you have other governments, you have 
um, similar things, but you're really still, you're making your price list, you're identifying your target customer, you're doing your sales forecast, you're doing your projections. All of that should be pretty commonplace. It's just now we're adding that layer of, okay, we just have to make sure everything flows in this um, new channel in India, Brazil, or Peru, or Spain. And we have a Chris or a, a trade agency to help us through that process. Absolutely. I couldn't have said that part better myself. Um, I'm learning. Yeah, no, you're doing good. <laughs> and so are your listeners. <laughs> yeah. Is there um, any other just final thoughts you would have to leave folks with or kind of examples to really help it illustrate and help this hit home of the opportunity here? Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I marvel at the amount of resources the state of Wisconsin has for its businesses. Um, whether you're pre-venture, pre-venture just means I got an idea, I'm not in business yet, or maybe you've been in business for the last 50 years and you just need that next extra step. We have resources here in our great state that meets you where you're at. Uh, so don't think that you're going it alone. We're here. Uh, some of these some of these services are pay to play. Uh, the SBDC is free and we're confidential. Um, and, and we we bring to your table, uh, you know, actionable, sustainable. Uh, strategies to to make you successful. That's ultimately what this is all about, is, may, is your success. So please just know you don't have to go it alone and that we're here. Uh, and of course, if you're listening outside of Wisconsin, uh, the SBDC network is, you know, countrywide. Uh, you just have to Google your local area and find out uh, who's there that can help you out. And then, you know, I always tell people I'm here to help. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we rely on so much. So we, in our fellows program here at the Food Finance Institute, we do a six to nine month coaching program with food farm and processing businesses um, from across the U.S. And our ideal way to serve those clients or those businesses in that program is to work with them during that time, but also to work with them and an SBDC consultant in their local area, because we really help that business um, grow to best together when we're supporting that client in that way. And so we're always really supportive of the ability and resources you can get within your state and within your network. And so really encourage folks to, to look and both consider international trade and leverage those resources you have in your state um, to help you help you grow and not feel so alone. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your expertise and joining us here today on the Edible Alpha podcast. Well, and thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and, uh, and, and, and I hope we can do this again. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.